Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is James Mann. I represent Harborside, the taxpayer in this case. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal if I may. I will watch the clock. There are two issues in this case. First issue has to do with the 16th Amendment. The commissioner presents a novel understanding of the 16th Amendment, saying it doesn't apply to 280E. This understanding reflects with Supreme Court precedent, disavows the Tenth Circuit's position in Alcorn, and would effectively read the 16th Amendment out of the Constitution. The second issue, tax counting issue. Max Sobel controls this case and have to be overruled for the commissioner to prevail. There, the court held the cost of goods sold is determined before deductions to get to gross income. But to the extent the commissioner tries to use the 471-3 regs to disallow cost that belongs to the cost of goods sold, the dash 3 regs are presumptively invalid. We just asked on the constitutional argument, it just doesn't seem that this was raised below, was it? Yes, it was, Your Honor. The 16th Amendment issue was in trial counsel's brief, and that's in the excerpts of record. And the tax court opinion talks about the 16th Amendment. So it seems to me that that's all that's needed to preserve the argument. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, the way it was written was a little bit more of a avoidance argument. And the way it's touched upon in the tax court decision on review is, it seems to be quite a bit different than the way you're arguing it here, in part because you're arguing it here in a more robust way than you argued it below. Is that fair? Yes, that's true, Your Honor. But it doesn't, the way an argument is presented below doesn't mean that you can't change your approach to that argument on appeal. The 16th Amendment clearly is an issue in this case. It's an issue of the industry. This is purely an issue of law. And there's this big record in this case to enable the court to make a decision about it. So how do you respond to the argument that the 16th Amendment just doesn't apply, that this is not a direct tax, and therefore the 16th Amendment is not in play? It's far-fetched. I mean, the court in Alpenglow in the 10th Circuit started off correctly. It says the 16th Amendment controls 280. 280 is part of the income tax. The 16th Amendment says income taxes don't have to be apportioned. And immediately, in the 16th Amendment, income means gain. That's the plain meaning of income. That's what the court said in Eisner v. McComber. And immediately after the enactment of the 16th Amendment, there were Supreme Court cases that said the corporate income tax is clearly controlled by the 16th Amendment. What cases are you referring to? Brushaver v. Union Pacific, Your Honor, where Union Pacific said, well, this corporate income tax doesn't, you know, it's not valid under the 16th Amendment, which had just been passed. And the court said, no, it is. Corporate income tax, what the 16th Amendment says, it talks about incomes from whatever source derived, and that includes the corporate income tax. The commissioner's position is that somehow 280E isn't a disallowance of a deduction, but it's somehow a freestanding tax on business income, which it obviously isn't. It's a way of increasing taxable income, so it bears no relation to the gain of the taxpayer. Isn't your argument really that 
the two eighty tax must allow all deductions that are allowed to other taxpayers you don't you don't have to allow all deductions it's just well but the see here's my problem they allow some there, there are there are, it's not simply your gross receipts that are being taxed there are some some costs of business that are being allowed to be removed from income. So it seems to me your argument must be an sort of an equal protection argument. We're not getting the same break that other taxpayers get on their corporate tax. And that doesn't strike me as a 16th Amendment argument. So am, I, am I wrong in that characterization? Yes, you are. The only thing that that is the only deductions from taxable income that the taxpayers allow under 280 is cost of goods sold. Cost of goods sold don't include ordinary necessary business expenses like wages. Or well, wages. and but that's my point. My my point is that they allow some deduction, cost of goods sold, uh, not others. And so, is it the fact that they don't allow? Is it, why why is it, why is that then not just a tax on something less than gross receipts, but rather than on income? Are we fighting about the definition of income. The Sixteenth Amendment says that income includes gain. So here the idea is that because the two two eighty e disallows all of these expenses, the relationship between gain and the amount that's taxed is severed. So your, your position is that to be constitutional, the the definition of the tax the taxable amount under 280e must include all traditional measures of gain. It doesn't have to include all traditional measures of gain. This case is not about drawing lines or a three factor test or anything like that. This case is about the difference between all and some. 280 disallows all expenses. No, it doesn't. See, that's my problem. My problem is you say cost of goods, for example, can be when when figuring out what your income is, you you subtract the cost of goods. And so it's not taxing gross receipts. It's taxing something less than gross receipts. And so I'm trying to figure out where your constitutional line is about what must be subtracted from gross receipts before before this becomes constitutional. Your Honor, cost of goods sold is what you subtract from gross receipts to get to gross income. And the tax is levied on gross income. So- Yes, well, I understand sold, that. Cost of goods sold isn't even a deduction. It's the way you start to get to gross income. So- Whether, you, whether we call it a deduction or a reduction, it's clear that gross receipts are not being taxed, correct? Yes, and that's the, that's the distinction okay. this court draws in Max Sobel. It is the distinction between above the line and below the line. Cost of goods sold is getting to gross income. It's not a deduction. It's not a So in your mind, what is the minimum amount of deductions that must be allowed before a tax becomes constitutional under the 16th Amendment? I don't know, but we're not asking the court to draw a line here. Again, it's well, You are. You're asking us to say that some must be allowed and so the question is what must be allowed no we're asking you to preserve to adhere to the traditional definition of cost of goods sold which is they're not really deductions they're just reductions 
engrossing in ok so let me let me rephrase your argument so i understand it your 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 position is that any tax that doesn't allow what have been traditionally viewed under the internal revenue code as deductions is unconstitutional any tax that disallows all deductions because because it severs the idea it severs the connection between gain and income you're being taxed on something that's not income congress could have passed a gross receipts tax you pay tax every time you buy a gallon of gas right but instead congress put this in the middle of the income tax it's a disallowance of a deduction of all normal yeah and i'm sure you want i'm sure you want to move on to another topic but i just want to just make sure i understand your position your position there is that the internal revenue code with respect to taxing gross receipts minus cost of goods must include some form of deduction yes your honor uh okay but i i guess i'm then confused now by what you're asking here are you saying because that is not allowed because all deductions are disallowed under 280e the remedy for that is that we have to just strike down the whole statute even though congress could make your clients deductions in some way that's right your honor this is a facial challenge 280e necessarily severs the connection between gain and the amount being subject to tax if congress wanted to pass 280z saying some of the expenses are disallowed but not others that would be a different case. This case is about all the expenses. But does that does that same argument then apply to the illegal kickbacks provision? In other words, that's another business that Congress regards as illegal. It, it regards your client's business as illegal too, even though state law treats it differently. But is the import of your argument that any business co- Congress will have to allow deductions, even if it regards the conduct of that business as violating the law, even the criminal law. Congress, with respect to kickbacks, Congress can disallow any specific set of expenses. Disallow kickbacks, bribes, excessive contributions to pension plans, whatever. But it's just that Congress can't disallow all deductions the way it does here. Um, Moving on to the tax accounting argument briefly, the, the idea is that, again, there is this distinction between cost of goods sold and deductions and that the taxpayer is allowed to have its method of accounting unless there's a failure to fairly reflect income. There's no- Can, I, can I ask you the same question Judge Brass asked at the beginning? With respect to the tax accounting method, not whether sub B applies, but whether the method that you think is required was chosen, how is that preserved in the tax court? I'm not sure I understand your question. I'm not sure I see that argument having been made in the tax court, which is that the wrong method of accounting was used. Am I wrong about that? Yes, Your Honor, because there was a lot of, there, there's a lot of testimony and arguments in the briefs about the proper calculation of cost of goods sold. And that's why, for example, in one of the problems, saying you have to have this expansive approach, cost of goods sold. So it was in the case below. And the odd thing about the tax court opinion is that it never cites Max Sobel, which is the controlling case on this. Okay, so now 
Now let's look at your brief on appeal. On appeal, you say, even if subsection B applies, the costs that allocated to costs of goods sold were in fact for acquiring the merchandise in a condition to sell to customers. And that's, I think, the entire argument that I see about that on appeal. Where else have you developed that argument in your appellate briefs? The argument on appeal is not only that dash B doesn't apply, but that, for example, dash... No, I understand. The argument is that dash B... First argument, dash B doesn't apply. Second argument is if it applies, they applied the wrong accounting method under it. And I'm trying to figure out where in your appellate briefs to us you developed that second argument. We discuss how you shouldn't get to dash 3, but even under dash 3, our brief says dash 3D is more appropriate than dash 3B because dash 3B says taxpayer can use a method that is more appropriate to its particular industry. The taxpayer has... We're missing each other here. It's probably my fault. Let's assume we decide that dash B is the appropriate reg to apply. You then have a sub-argument that even if it is, the service used the wrong accounting method under dash B. At least that's what you seem to be saying. But I don't see anything in your appellate briefs other than one sentence which really talks about that point. So I'm trying to figure out where in your appellate briefs to us you developed that point. We say it wasn't so much a question of the wrong accounting methods as they just didn't even look at the expenses that Harborside claimed that would have been allowable under dash 3B, even under the tax court's opinion. Did you make that argument below? I mean, there were stipulated amounts put before the tax court after its ruling. Was there any argument to say, hey, you know, we understand the court's ruling that B applies, but even within B, some of these costs here really should be excludable under the B inventory rules. Where did you make that argument to the tax court? That argument was made in the post-trial brief, Your Honor. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time, if I may. You may. Thank you. Let's hear from the service. May it please the court, Nathaniel Pollack representing the commissioner. This court should reject Harborside's 16th Amendment arguments for two independent reasons. The most fundamental one is that the tax we're dealing with is not a direct tax. And if I could, I'd like to just go directly to the Brush-Shaber opinion, because that's really the principal authority that Harborside relies on to argue that the service has gotten the constitutional analysis wrong. And the Brush-Shaber opinion directly supports the commissioner's position. And the quote that I would point to is, in characterizing the Pollack case, it says, the Pollack case did not in any degree involve a holding that income taxes generically and necessarily came within the class of direct taxes on property. It's very clear when you look at Brush-Shaber that the court was saying, look, in Pollack, we treated income tax as a direct tax on property because we thought it had that effect. But in light of the 16th Amendment, the income tax moves back where it always was, decisively into the bucket of indirect taxes. And so the tax that we're dealing with here, so the tax that results, the increased tax burden, if you will, that results from the denial of the deductions 
in Section 280E, even supposing it taxed more than income, which it clearly does not, would be a constitutional tax under under Article 1 because this is not a, a direct tax. The 16th Amendment does, does not is not the source of Congress's authority to impose imp- income taxes. It imposed income taxes before the 16th Amendment that were ruled constitutional, including the corporate income tax and others. Um, and so there's just that the, the fundamental tenet of the constitutional argument here is just a complete misunderstanding of the history of the 16th Amendment. Um, Let me, can I ask you a question about that? It was, I'm, I'm, I'm probably rephrasing Mr. Mann's argument in a way that may not be accurate, but it seems to me he's making two arguments. When you re- one is that this is a direct tax. Uh, but the second one is that the 16th Amendment, I think he's saying, because it talks about income tax, allows income taxes, only allows taxes on uh, gain. Uh, right. And it, it doesn't allow taxes on something less something less than gain. And I won't make the rest of his argument, but is there an independent, or I think he's making an independent 16th Amendment argument that this isn't an income tax because it doesn't, because it, it doesn't allow certain deductions. Um, assuming that's an argument he's making, could you respond to it? Sure, I would respond to that with two points. The first point would be, um, even supposing that were true, it would nonetheless be constitutional. So suppose that the, the result of Section 280E were to be a, a tax on more than income and a tax that it impinged upon or came closer to a tax on gross receipts. It would still be constitutional under, under Article 1. But let's suppose for a minute, hypothetically, that the 16th Amendment is Congress's only source of authority to tax income. And in order for Congress to impose a, a valid tax here, it's got to be a tax on income. The, the, the Harborside concedes that this is a tax on, on gross income. This court has held again and again that it's literally, the, the, the quote is unquestionable, that, that c- Congress can tax gross income. That's in the Bagnall case, and, there's, and actually in the Max Sobel case, which, which Harborside relies on, this court says Congress is free to create, abolish, or limit tax deductions. And so um, th- this, this uh, Section 280E, which, which uh, eliminates tax deductions, but as your, your Honor correctly pointed out, it does not eliminate all exclusions from income, uh, is, is constitutional even supposing this were a tax on property. And so in order, so if it were a tax, say, on, on uh, income from stock, it would be a tax that would, to which you've got to have, it's a tax on property. And so in order to not be a direct tax, it's got to be an income tax. That's basically what the 16th Amendment did is say, you know, in these, ca- in these categories where income an income tax is treated as effectively a, a direct property tax, it's it, the source of the source of income doesn't matter. What, what even income from property is not a is not a uh, a direct tax. Um, so either way, it, it, what you know, I think the, the the more sort of the fundamentally more sound uh, way to look at it is to say this is a valid exercise of Article of Congress's Article One taxing power, and the Sixteenth Amendment doesn't impinge upon that. Uh, authority in any way that's that that um like so i mean and, and you can see that from from the hylton opinion right that the 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 taxes um the category of, of direct taxes is very small um 
pot the pollock decision arguably expanded that well did expand that the cat the idea of a direct tax and the th amendment at least to some degree you know reduces that back but no in no circumstance even under the pollock decision the court was at pains to say well in so far as this is an income tax on wages it's fine it's just that we were going to strike it all down because what the we don't think congress would have imposed this income tax uh if it if it knew that it wasn't going to be allowed to tax uh income from property you know like ownership of stock and such the position is that congress can eliminate all deductions as we traditionally understand that term but with respect to cost of control which it cannot intrude on that whatever that category means i i would say uh judge breast that it under under article so it it clearly has not uh eliminated cost of goods sold here and has and and that's and so there so that's not but hypothetically if 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 congress were to say uh we're going to um reduce what can be we're going to reduce the measure of cost of goods sold or even eliminate it entirely i mean congress has in the past taxed gross receipts of a business in the spreckle sugar cases is the example of that that was constitutional uh, you know the the brochaver case makes clear that an income tax is really just a species of a of an excise tax so so yes i but but here uh i i think that there are, are cases that that's that say look the idea of income includes this idea that you reduce that you reduce receipts by cost of goods sold that's inherent in sort of the meaning of the word income and so i think yes to the extent that you know like this is an income tax and it is inherent in in the meaning of the word income that that um you can you reduce receipts by by um cost of goods sold and you know although uh, if if the if the income tax income tax statute said nothing about cost of goods sold it would be implied by the use of words income what we actually have now in the code is some fairly significant uh uh guidance both in statutory and regulatory on what counts as cost of goods sold and so i think maybe just to transition briefly to the to the second go ahead we do that your brief obviously led with the point that none of these this constitutional challenge was even raised below i take it you still hold that view yes and in fact not only was it not raised but i but the harborside's position below as articulated in its in its uh, post trial brief was that uh the under the 16th amendment congress is quote empowered and then uh also to quote to to tax gross income and then this is a quote from the brief once gross income is calculated congress is then authorized to use its legislative grace and grant discretionary deductions so that's correct as a statement of law it reflects this court's precedent but it's exactly the opposite of what uh the harborside is is arguing now your friend i know you want to shift gears here but i want to ask you a, a related waiver question and it's the one i posed to mr man yeah. let's assume dash b or however you want to you want to call it applies they argue that even under dash b well they I, I think they're arguing that even under dash b the wrong accounting method was applied and you say they really didn't uh preserve that argument in the tax court um tell me why uh 
Your Honor, on, on page 66 of the opening brief in this case, there's, I think, the one sentence that you're, you're right. That's the one I referred to in the opening argument. And, and that, as I understood it, and still understand it, that sentence makes the argument that, although it doesn't, it's not a long argument, but it makes the argument that, well, even if dash B is the correct regulation to apply, all of the indirect costs at issue here would be, would fit under dash B. That's clearly incorrect. The key sentence. I understand your position that it's incorrect. You also argue that it wasn't preserved. So that's what I was trying to get to that. So what, so the point that I would say is, yes, that argument wasn't made below that, that, that all of the indirect costs at issue here are, are fit under dash B was not made below. Another argument that wasn't made below even sort of even more clearly was you could have made an argument that, well, okay, so dash B maybe does allow for some indirect costs, costs of acquiring the goods. So to the extent that there were transportation costs or other costs that were denied that, that were pre-acquisition costs that went into the actual, you know, before the goods were acquired in order to acquire these goods, these costs were incurred. That's clearly not the majority of the, of the indirect costs at issue here, if it's any of them, but you could have made a fallback argument that said, well, at least those costs we should get. That argument is not, I mean, I've searched for it. I don't find that anywhere in the, in the record below. And I don't think it's even made on appeal here. It's, it's maybe hinted at in the reply brief, although there's no attempt to itemize, well, these are the, these are the costs at issue that were pre-acquisition costs. And it's also, go ahead. They're also stipulated amounts that were presented to the tax court. Yes. The rule of 155 calculations were stipulated in light of the, of the, the judgment. Exactly. So I think that's another reason. I mean, I don't, so I don't think there's any basis for, you know, I, it's, it's frankly not entirely clear what, you know, whether some costs pre-acquisition indirect costs are sort of go into the, the purchasing costs from the records. Like maybe there may be in some circumstances, things like, you know, transportation costs would be in some circumstances included in the cost of purchases. But in any event, that, that argument just doesn't get made below. And I don't think there's any reason to remand to allow that argument to be made for the first time when it clearly could have been made below here. And, and I think fundamentally that, that, you know, the, the crux is it's, it's very clear that Harborside is a reseller of goods under the regulatory framework. The principal argument that, that, that Mr. Mann makes is, well, there's, there's broad discretion to decide what counts as costs of goods sold. And we, you know, Harborside can just decide for itself, as long as it's accurate in its accounting, it can decide for itself whether it wants to include the goods as in the cost of goods sold category or in the business deduction category. There's no basis for that. The regulatory framework is at pains under section, you know, under the, you know, 471 regulations to identify what kind, what counts as costs of goods sold for particular kinds of taxpayers. And here, because the reseller regulation applies, what counts as costs of goods sold is the purchase price of the goods plus chart necessary charges incurred in acquiring possession of the goods. And, and so those costs that are mainly at issue in this case, I'll fall outside of that. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission.
Sorry, Your Honor, I was having trouble hearing you there. Yeah, I said Mr. Mann argued that on this point, there's inconsistency with our court's decision in McInerville. So how do you respond to that point? Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah, on McInerville, I would say, in fact, the decision in McInerville very directly supports the government's understanding of Section 471-3B. So there was a suggestion in the tax court in McInerville that the cost at issue there had a kind of dual character, I think was the phrase that was used. And this court said in McInerville, it doubts the existence of this kind of dual character expense. And when it said that, it cited to the exact sentence in the B regulation that we're focused on now. So I think what this court's decision in McInerville suggests is that this court, like the IRS, reads the cost of goods sold definition as exclusive. The expenses are either in or out. There's not this broad discretion. And I would also point out that the Marcor case, which the taxpayer relies on, does the same. It directly states costs incurred after a taxpayer has acquired full dominion and control over the merchandise are not included in inventory costs. So I think the authority that's available supports the government's interpretation of the sub B regulation. And I think that this court should conclude that 280E is constitutional and that the IRS's treatment of cost of goods sold here was appropriate. Thank you. Judge Corker, did you have any questions for counsel? No, I don't. Okay. Mr. Mann, we'll put a minute back on the clock for you for rebuttal. Thank you. Your Honors, Max Sobel said exactly the opposite of what the commissioner is saying. Max Sobel said, if you have an expense that can go into either cost of goods sold or be a period expense, it has to go into cost of goods sold. And to the extent the commissioner tries to put it as a period expense and doesn't disallow it, that's not valid. So that's what Max Sobel says. Keep in mind, we're asking this court to remand to the tax court to remedy the three errors it made with respect to cost. It should be directed to adhere to Max Sobel, permit Harborside to present its accounting for cost of goods sold, and apply the threshold statutory standards that the accounting method be fair and clearly reflect income. If you look at Amicus Briefs in this case, it is important to Harborside. It's not fair to Harborside. It's not fair to the industry not to provide a true assessment of the tax accounting standards that apply to Canada's settlement. Thank you, Your Honor. We thank counsel for their arguments and briefing in this case. This case will be submitted and the court will be in recess until tomorrow. Thank you. This court for this session stands adjourned.